I'm Justin, co-founder of Safari, the number one community for Web3 growth leaders and the leading privacy-centric Web3 measurement platform. And I'm Quinn Campbell, co-founder of Superfine, uh, the user acquisition platform for Web3 Gaming's next wave of growth. Uh, and on Safari's Web3 growth podcast, we go light on narratives and deep into the growth strategies and tactics deployed by leading Web3 growth operators today. Today, we're diving into the Yield Guild Games ecosystem, analyzing how they've grown their community and company and how they're helping others do the same. And our guest today is Gabby Dizon, the visionary and uh, and founder behind Yield Guild Games, uh, the, the guild of guilds, the decentralized gaming guild that has been making waves since the start, is now making waves in, in Web3 growth and Web3 growth tech as well. So we're pumped to have him. Uh, Gabby's a gaming veteran, having founded many companies before YGG and then now obviously running with YGG. Gabby, big welcome, man. Justin, Quinn, thanks for having me here. Absolutely. Gabby, in terms of run of show today, you know, I think we'd love to almost flow a little bit like this. We'd love to dig into some of the initial growth tactics that you and, and the YGG team used in the beginning, and then maybe touch on some of the early community strategies. I think that's really, really interesting, especially given what Justin and Safari are doing as well. And then would love to start to double click into UA and I'll ask a bunch of questions around how you're thinking about the future of user acquisition in Web3 and how we're kind of seeing things evolve there. And then if there's time left, dig into some late community strategies and how deep funnel questing is really going to start moving people to the funnel more efficiently. You founded YGG back in, in late 2020, so it's definitely on the very early side. What were some of the early growth strategies that you were employing at that time for really getting YGG off the ground? If you remember around three years ago at the start of COVID, I'd been playing Axie for, I would say, around two years at that time. And it was the rise of what's known as a scholarship or the lending program. And for those that don't know, the scholarship program is using the NFT assets and then lending them out to other players so that they can play the game. Then the player would earn tokens or NFTs, and then there would be a revenue share between the asset owner and the player, right? So it's a lending program that brought its way into blockchain gaming. Axie was the first to do it. And the most fascinating part of that was that this wasn't a feature that Axie designed. It was something that the community discovered because of the permissionless assets that were in the game. So that was always fascinating because people automatically assume that, oh, Axie engineered this as a growth tactic. And Axie really grew on the back of this. And that's where the story of YG came in. I've been in games for around 20 years now and started into NFTs and blockchain gaming in 2018. And the thought of player collectives, basically guilds like you had in MMOs that had their own NFT assets, that had always been something that captured my imagination. When I saw what was happening with scholarship programs in the Axie community, I thought, wow, this is it. This is something that could scale. So what most people did was that there were one or two people that owned a lot of axes and they would manually track everything on a spreadsheet, create the accounts manually, transfer the axes, which is obviously very time consuming, right? And we wanted it to be a scalable venture type business from day one. So I, along with my two co-founders, Owl and Beryl, did uh, three things that were different. One is that we scaled with money. Of course, we raised a smaller seed round at the time, a little over a million dollars. Second was we scaled with technology. A lot of the things that people were doing manually, we were automating. We were automating the transfer of axes to different wallets. We were automating the use of accounts using Discord bots while everyone else was doing it manually. 
But the third and I think most powerful one was that we were using community as a growth strategy as well. Instead of us managing all of these players ourselves, we tapped independent community managers that had their own little communities. We gave them access to our assets using technology, and they would go recruit and train their players how to play the game and earn SLP. And we would give them a cut of the, the revenue share, the SLP being produced. And we actually gave them a bigger cut than YGG received. We gave them double of what we were getting. So this is how we were quickly able to grow YGG's community footprint. And when Axie grew massively in 2021, we were the only ones that had a scalable structure on top of it. That's super interesting, especially how the community sort of identified this growth hack and that Axie, the company, supercharged it. Are there other communities that you've seen do these types of, you know, they found the growth hack and then uh, worked with the company to bring it to the next level? Or do you think this is sort of a, a unique YGG Axie story? Well, I think a lot of innovations have definitely happened then. A lot of games have copied the Axie model, but uh, a lot of new other ones are also trying to improve on the economic model, on the community model as well. So now you're seeing a lot of gaming DAOs, a lot of NFT asset DAOs, you see player DAOs. So there's a lot of different ways that community is organizing around what are basically these virtual economies around these games. And so... Yeah, I just loved seeing a lot of the experimentation that's happening. And of course, along with the programs that YGG is doing as well. And did you set out to build a community-first company? You identified this hack, you started working with these small community builders. I'm curious whether that was part of the, the strategy from the get-go or it sort of evolved that way. And I'm asking that because I feel like there are not that many truly community-first companies in Web3. And that's maybe something a little bit unique between YGG and Safari. So I'm curious to learn a little bit more. Was that the original intention and how did that evolve accordingly? Yeah, that was the original intention. And to do this, we kind of set up in a manner where our company itself is not a company. It's an association. And so there's no underlying equity. All of the stakeholders own tokens. So there's only one class of stakeholders, the YGG token holder, which includes our community, of course, our investors, the founders, the team. And that means that the incentives are aligned across the different stakeholders with one asset class rather than having equity, having tokens, having NFTs. Gabby, I think I'd love to kind of double click on this a little bit. There's something really unique about having both you and Justin on this podcast together because, you know, well, community led growth has been so central to Web3, you know, since, since the start, it's largely been B2C community led growth. And, and I think... Um, at YGG, you, you were definitely doing a mix of both because of this guild of guilds kind of mechanism. And then obviously, you know, I've always been kind of obsessive about following what Justin's been doing with Safari. I think it's so cool. I would love to get both of your opinions, actually, Gabby, maybe you first, around the differences between B2B and B2C community building in, in Web3 and any unique challenges around the B2B part and whether you see that as something worth pursuing for somebody just starting to spin up a B2B Web3 growth company today. Yeah, so... If you look at one of the mantras of YDG, it's always been Guild of Guilds, which means that we want to be a protocol that enables different groups in Web3. So, of course, to do that best, you start with your own guild to show people how it's done. Typically, there's a guild that wants to be the platform but not have the guild. So it's very intentional for us to want to be 
a guild protocol, an enabler of groups in the long term. But having our guild at the forefront at the start makes sure that we we're kind of able to push out the innovations and have our own guild to test these things on. That's awesome, Justin. How, how do you how do you think about the B two B community building side when it comes to to growth? I really think that community is a superpower for B two B companies because really the way that I think about B two B buyers today is that a lot of people think that they're just kind of sitting around thinking about what tools to buy. What B2B buyers really want is to grow their career and grow their network. And I think the community serves these really two important needs for uh, B2B operators like all of us in a way that a company's product cannot. And so we lead with the needs that they really have. They're really innate to helping them grow their career. And then through that, we really win trust uh, with these B2B buyers and key stakeholders over time. So we're really playing the long game with the B2B community. We're thinking about how can we accelerate different people's careers, connect them to the right people, and over time, hope that they'll repay the favor by using our platform. To address your question, Gwen, about the unique challenges of the B2B part, I think that there's always going to be this tension between product and community, and that the more you push your product within your community, the more the community is like, this is a really authentic uh, community. You know, you're kind of trying to extract value and get something uh, from us. And you know, maybe that exists also in B2C communities. Curious if Gabby has thoughts on that. But I think that there's always this tension. And, and for us at Safari, we've really leaned heavily on the, the community for community's sake part. But now that we've also launched a product, we have to think more, more uh, strategically about how we do a little bit of both and push our products at very discrete times uh, while still uh, creating this really authentic community um, of people know, sharing insights and, and learning alongside each other. Yeah, we see that tension as well. And I think it's going to be innate to every product or platform with a community-based focus. And honestly, there's probably no easy answers there. You want your community to grow and they, they don't feel like they just want to be sold to, right? The community should stand on its own. So yeah, it's, uh, it's something that is, I think, tricky and probably for product leaders, for founders, you should start by listening and figuring out from there. I actually don't have any silver bullets on that one. I don't, I don't think they exist. <laughs> uh, it is interesting, Justin, that you outlined helping people grow their career and their network, because you know to some extent that resonates with some of the uh, job board of, of the internet um, kind of early descriptors of, of YGG that I know Gabby you've used before. So it's, there's some cool similarities there. Anyways, yeah, kind of moving forward from community, you know, YGG certainly evolved so much, both on the community side and on the on the company side, and obviously the product offering side as well. And, and we definitely want to talk about SuperQuests for sure. But, you know, you've touched players, partners, investors, different companies in the growth stack, different games. Which persona throughout all of this has been really the most difficult for you to keep engaged? And are there any that you're still working on tackling today? Or do any major silver bullets come to mind? Any unique stories about aha moments for engaging certain personas? Yeah, so I'd say that we have three very distinct audiences. One are the games themselves that we work with, the ones that we work with, buy assets in. Second are our community, the ones that like to play the games, the ones that kind of make our community programs come alive. And the third is the crypto community and the crypto investors. So the way that we set the communications narrative and tone is actually very different for each 
how we speak to crypto investors is different from how we speak to games and it's different from how to speak to players. And this is actually not easy at all. And we've been very intentional on our narrative since day one. That's why you have a lot of con content that you were consuming on YDG a few years ago. And now we are also actively shifting this content to what we want YDG to be about. A lot of it about a player-owned reputation, for example, with the use of SoBound token achievements, progression within communities, questing as a way to bring different communities together. And so it's not easy and you have to be very intentional about speaking to these very different groups of stakeholders. And so as those stakeholders have changed over time, how has your go-to-market changed, especially from being a guild buying assets to now building yeah. a growth platform on the B2B side? Yeah. Quests. So if you look at our first product, it's really our community that was uh, supercharged by that scholarship program that we scaled. That enabled us to buy assets in different games and form partnerships with different games. But uh, if I really think about it, how do you scale community across different regions, across different games, across different virtual economies around the world? And the only answer that I could come up with was to build product, build product that could scale community especially if you look at what communities are like, no one really wants to be part of a community of a million members. Like you don't feel like your voice has anything, but I can be a community of 10 people that's part of a guild of a thousand people that's part of you know the guild in my country that rolls up to this like major guild, right? Um, so that's why we came up with that guild of guilds model. And the only way we could do that was that by empowering the kind of smallest available unit uh, of community, but making it feel like they were still part of something greater. And yeah, that's what we're also building with our software. Yeah, I just wanted to, to jump in here too. I recently saw that YGG has released a decentralized brand vision with uh, many different types of logos. I'm curious if that plays also into your vision of you know, there's the YGG community overall, but then there's also unique factions within the community and how you weigh your macro community against more micro factions in your community. Yeah, I think we spent around eight months figuring out that new brand identity because it wasn't just a new logo for YGG. If we were thinking about what does a decentralized community mean and how does that play into the identity? So we came upon an identity system that people can basically have these like rune Legos that they can use to create their own visual identity. And the YGG logo itself is the first expression of that. And we released basically a PSD that contained the shapes so that people can make their own logos out of it. And the plan is to make a software tool that can make that easier. But when we unveiled this logo at GDC this year, what surprised us is that our community members were like, give me that and started creating their own community logos already. So we've seen over 20 of the sub guilds within YDG create their identities. And this is something that we're going to reinforce further to create basically on-chain group identities on the internet. I'm curious whether there are any communities that you got inspiration from when you're creating your sort of decentralized brand vision. One that comes to mind as you're speaking was like how Pudgy Penguins created like all those gifts across the internet and their community just like totally ran with it and took over uh, Giphy. I think budgies are super cool. I think nouns are super cool as well. But even if you look at older community structures, 
all the way from maybe medieval guild communities to how uh, business communities, decentralized communities, like the Rotary Club, for example, they also are part of like a lot smaller groups that kind of roll up to regional, national chapters as well. So we took a look at a lot of these identity systems. And I think what we're doing for people organizing themselves is not new in itself. What's new is that you're able to organize these groups, bring their identity and their assets on chain and make that into a composable asset. So I think that's that's the really new part. Awesome. All right. So Gabby, switching gears slightly, <clears throat> I'm, I'm super excited to really start to dive into the future of UA, future of growth, future and, and Web3 growth tech kind of portion here. And to kick off, I would love for you to tell us more about SuperQuest and, and your thesis here around building a more long-term engagement questing versus kind of a top funnel questing system. Sure. So I come from the free-to-play space. And if you look at mobile free-to-play in the last 10 years, a lot of how your product does well basically depends on how you can scale user acquisition in those games. And honestly, in my mobile career, we were able, not really able to hit that scale. A, a big part of it is I think we I started my mobile game studio in 2014. A lot of the winners of that era were already defined by then, the supercells of the world. And that was actually led me to figure out what's new, what is the new technology that can usher in kind of a platform shift in games. And that's what led me to NFTs and Web3. So when uh, Web3 started growing, especially two years ago, my mind really shifted to, okay, what is the growth stack going to be like? Who are going to be the winners in this space? And the biggest difference between Web2 growth and Web3 growth is that Web2 growth is very platform UA dependent. There are the big platforms like Facebook and Google. There are the ad networks. And none of them really solve for community, right? Which is really the cornerstone of Web3. So the main question in my head, and I think both of you can really resonate with this, is that what does it mean to have a growth-oriented community? And that was the question that's been stuck on my mind ever since very shortly after founding YDG. And one of the conclusions I came to was that a quest is the native ad unit of Web3. If you look at Web2, you have your static ads, you have your video ads, you may even have your playable ads. All of them lead to the install, right? And I think that when you're thinking about community-based growth, it's not just about the install, it's about what are people doing post-install and how can you actually help retain people for a long time uh, with the use of community. And I saw this firsthand with my experience in Axie. It was community that really got a lot of people going. And it was namely the different roles that people could, could play within the Axie ecosystem. Whether you're a player, a guild manager, a scholar, an esports player, a content creator, there was something in there for everyone to play according to their strengths and interests. And yeah, that was the most interesting thing to me. So coming back to YDG, I was thinking about how can we organize guilds so that they can form together, do these different kinds of things that can help grow a community, but use different kinds of strengths and then incentivize that so that people will help each other grow a community. Gabby, a, a quest is the native ad unit of Web3. I, I love that. Um, I think, Justin, it may have even been in our first recording, you know, we were talking about this idea of skeuomorphism, right? And skeuomorphism is like when a new tech comes out, 
people tend to just apply the old design thinking, old design principles to the new tech. And like the classic example is newspaper on the internet. The first iterations of it were literally just basically copy pastes of the front page of the New York Times. And now, you know, it's much more native. And we had been trying to brainstorm around what is the Web3 native ad unit going to look like? And I love the idea of, of Quest's kind of being just that. I think you also touched a little bit on the future of the growth stack. So Gabby, I'd love to push you on that. What is your thesis here? What does the future Web3 growth stack look like? What are all the pieces of the puzzle that fit together? So first you need your top of funnel acquisition, which is what everyone thinks about, right? When you think about user acquisition, but I think it's only one of certain components that really help make Web3 growth works. And then second, you need the action unit or the engagement unit. So I think this is where quests come in. And if you think about what is a quest, it is mainly do this, get that, right? Do this is an action. Get that is some kind of reward. How you define those things can actually be a lot more nuanced and sophisticated. Like uh, a lot of people have thought this to mean, okay, I'll post a quest. We give out tokens right afterwards, which have led to the rise of what basically looked like Web3 incent networks. I think that's perfectly valid form of doing it, but that's not what we're interested in. We've always been interested in quests that allow player communities to grow and retain themselves uh, long-term. So that means that you're not focused on immediate monetary or liquidity rewards, right? So that's why we are leading with status with soulbound token achievements. And soulbound token achievements, if you think about achievements, they're native to any gamer who's played on the platform. Xbox, Apple, Steam, any game has achievements. They are especially useful in Web3 because now this is user-owned reputation. If you look at what led to the rise of Web2 growth, it's the personalization of each user through the use of cookies, right? And for me, Soulbound Token Achievement is basically the Web3 version of a cookie that the player owns that they're proud to show off, that kind of differentiates them from other people because they can proudly show off the things that they're done. On the advertiser side, it actually allows you to very carefully target which community members you'd like to invite to your community and give them custom quests and custom offers. I think that questing platforms have to be very careful, right? And, and you identified this because if done incorrectly, a questing platform can basically just create a mercenary where you pay somebody to do something and, and then they go away. And so I really like the approach that you guys are working on, especially around soulbound tokens. And then that added benefit of them actually being targetable afterwards. So yeah, Gabby, I have some notes here and, and you're seeing the future of the growth stack being around kind of UA, bringing people to the door and then like a deep funnel questing, kind of getting them through the door into an aha moment in the product. I think those fit exactly with how I'm thinking about it. I would add one more piece. I think it's, it's top of funnel UA, it's action unit questing, deeper funnel questing, and then it's measurement. It's attribution and you know we've got we've got justin here i think it's it's interesting having all three of us in the room um, but that measurement then enables you know the the ua and the questing to just be supercharged and, and keep going from there um so yeah i'm excited to see how that all plays out justin i'd love to throw it your way man what are your thoughts on the future of the of the growth stack i actually think think it's very similar i think that the one piece that and quinn and i have chatted about this on a past episode is they're really we still are really struggling to figure out what that community is actually like what sort of the superpowers of community are, how we measure that, how we think about that, what sort of the unit of value that matters most, what matters to different personas within communities. And I think that that's still a missing piece of the puzzle that we're all trying to still figure out with our respective platforms. 
And one person described it was really great to me is that like community leaders are still sort of like waiting for their growth hacker moment. And that like community as a function is still not proven yet. Uh, like growth hacking was like this like weird thing that like weirdos did back in the early two th- back in the early web two days. But then over time, all all sort of like mature companies created a growth team. I think that the community team is still not like proven its function yet. And I, as community leaders prove out their function within sophisticated companies, I think that we will realize the types of tools that combine community experiments in the form of do X, get Y and measurement all in one. But I think that we're still in the early days of trying to figure it, figure out how these three pieces fit together. I think, yeah, that's absolutely true, Justin. We used to sit around the table at Sky Mavis, and at least this was kind of my approach to it, where as we would kind of propose new community activations, it was always like, yeah, I, I think that's a good idea. But, you know, we never could quite put the same kind of numbers and data-driven kind of theories behind it that we could in UA or in other parts of, of growth. Yeah, Quinn, I remember one of our earlier conversations that were very like illuminating to me. You talked about having two different types of funnels, your product funnel, which anyone from a web to app background is familiar with, and their community funnel. And what you noticed was that bringing people down the community funnel tends to be a lot stickier. So that was kind of a light bulb moment for me as well. Yeah, I, I love that one, Gabby. And it, it, what made it me realize that there were those two different funnels was actually using Amplitude which is like this super powerful web two product analytics software. And they create these beautiful flows where you can see like, oh, your most sticky users follow this flow through a product. And as I was looking at it and our flows through Axie, through Origins, I realized that in web three, I was only seeing the top half of of the iceberg. Because in web two, seeing that product flow is perfect. That's everything you need to know about what your users are doing, about what their journey is. But in web three, you need to see their journey in product, just like you said, and in community, right? That's what you just brought up. And there is no analytics suite out there yet that lets you see both halves of that iceberg. But when we get that, oh my gosh, we're all going to be supercharged. I guess that's a unicorn product in the making. I think so. Absolutely. (laughs) But it's hard though, because a lot of the community data is, you know, owned by Discord. Like it's very blocked and you can't access it. But when someone, when someone cracks that one, it's going to be big for sure. I want to double click a little bit more to, to Quest, Gabby. I think there are a lot of Quest skeptics out there, and I must admit, I might be one of them. Um, and there are a few different components here, right? There is the users who are doing the quests. There is like the actual product that is trying to be evangelized through questing. And then there's like the marketer and the Quest platform itself. They're kind of designing the quest. And a lot of people seem to blame the users and say like, you know, this is just something that's all for, for airdrop farmers and like there aren't real users that are, are getting value of it. But I wonder, would you place the blame elsewhere? Would you say that the types of products that Quest are evangelizing right now are not interesting enough to users and that's why we get the sort of asymmetric value exchange? Or is it about how the Quests, at least in their first version, have di- been designed and we need to sort of move beyond just the do X, get Y to more multi-step, more complex, more identity-centric Quests. I'm curious, how do you think that quests need to evolve from their their current state to be something that really becomes that full vision you described? Think of your favorite airline or your favorite hotel. That is actually one of the best quest systems. It's a do X get Y system, right? And you find yourself in uh, the process of, oh my God, I'm going to stay at a Marriott, even though it's more expensive than the next hotel because it gives me so much rewards. And it makes me feel so much better. And every now and then I get liquidity in the form of free hotel stay, right? But Marriott doesn't give you money every time you 
you go to one of their hotels. Like you don't get a free flight every time you fly Delta, right? You get some loyalty, you get some status, and then somewhere down the road, you get the free flight. So I think that the best quest systems are actually going to be purposely designed like the best loyalty systems that uh, you see this day. And if you see what YDG is doing, we're not giving immediate liquidity to our quest system, which is basically different than 99.9% of the quest systems out there. What we're giving first is status in the form of your Soulbound token achievement. It not only gives you status, it also builds your long-term resume of what you've done in Web3, what, uh, what value have you proven. And so it means that doing a lot of these quests builds up your status and your progression within the community. And then that status and progression leads you to do quests that can lead to rewards down the road. If you look at our guild advancement program, we just launched it. It's in season four. Each season of guild advancement program runs for three months, which means that you have to wait for three months before you actually get tokens for the quest that you've done. And this is done very purposely because it it actually just scares away 99% of the airdrop farmers who think, oh, I, I need to do actual work, right? So that I can er, uh, like earn these tokens, I can earn these badges. So what remains in our community are those who are naturally interested in doing the task. The reward obviously matters to them, but they are there because they actually really want to engage with whatever game or whatever program we have in our questing system. And I think that's going to be the future of questing. It's not micro task, mechanical Turk, I'm going to click on this button in this game and I'm going to get $1, $2, right? Yeah. A lot of people, especially those that are in the like Web3 loyalty space, talk about how loyalty programs are really transactional, at least in Web2, sort of as you're mentioning with the, the Marriott example, I think that we've all experienced some of these like really kind of boring uh, Web2 loyalty programs. So I'm curious, when you think about Quest, then do you think it's a way to finally innovate on loyalty programs with sort of more community with the community or Web3 ethos as as the core component, or do you think about it um, slightly differently? Yeah, absolutely. The superpower of what we're doing is that we're organizing communities who already intrinsically want to do the task. They want to play this game. They're organized as a group. And now there's an incentive structure, not just to give them rewards, but to give them status and progression in the virtual society that they care about. And that's that's really important because like people want the status. Like, for example, I'm an Axie OG. I want people to recognize me as an Axie OG, especially the newcomers coming in and then say, oh, this guy is a mystic Axie or look at his Axies. They have level 10 AXP. So Progression, I think, is a really key part of long-term retention for communities, both status and progression. And these are systems that we think heavily about and design into our community programs. There is one piece there that I want to double-click into. So in, in a past life in Web2, uh, we built out experimentation platforms, and that was a core focus for me. So I was really focusing on you know those do X, get Y incentives to incentivize the types of actions that we wanted to see in our marketplace. And you were saying that you know one of the beauties of these Web3 loyalty requests is that people already want to play the game and you want to incentivize certain actions that they already might want to take. But at least a core focus for us in the Web2 sort of do X, get Y world was we didn't want to incent financially incentivize people who would have taken the action anyway. 
with those sort of financial rewards. And I'm curious how you think about that in terms of, you know, people should have an innate interest in the game, but at the same time, you don't want to give financial rewards to people who would have done that action or would have played the game without the financial incentive. Yeah, but it's a really good question. I think that if done incorrectly, doing financial incentives can replace intrinsic with extrinsic motivation. But I think there's a way to design it where the rewards are something that is in addition to the motivation that they have. But that said, like, that's not easy, honestly. And it, this is something that among the uh, like a lot of incentive designers in the world, it's probably game designers and loyalty system designers uh, know how to do best. If you look at, for example, even like casino loyalty systems, they're really great at showing off status, making you spend more money. And it's not necessarily in the value of the money that you get back that determines like how happy you are. It's that perceived value of what you're getting, right? So that's why I've never been like a big believer in, for example, cashback systems. Cashback systems are like, it's too straightforward and it just looks at the percentage value of like the money you're spending being given back. But that perceived value, because everyone wants different things, right? And if you can hone through player targeting what these people perceive as valuable to them, then you can give them stuff that they value more than the actual dollar amount that uh, it costs to, to to give them that. Gabby, I know we're attending a games growth breakfast and the focus there will be discussion around specifically UA for Web3 games, right? I think it's a smaller pocket of games that have ad spend already allocated. But for the ones who are there, it's a, it's a challenge, you know? Um, so I, Gabby, you have deep experience, obviously, in mobile free-to-play. And, you know, UA is just such a core part of growth there. I'd love to hear any thinking that you have. You know, why why are we having trouble figuring this out in, in, in Web3 gaming when it worked so easily and simply in Web2? Yeah, so I think with Web2 growth, the platforms were there, specifically Facebook, Google, app stores, so that you can really easily smooth the funnel towards app install and you can scale that because these app stores gave you distribution of literally billions of possible users right so it gave you an extremely wide top of funnel and then you narrow down to the interest of the lower number of people who had wanted your game and as long as you could target them properly then you could scale your growth i think the the problem with web3 is that a lot of the superpower of web3 comes from community and ownership of a certain product or of a certain ecosystem. And that's very hard to communicate unless you're already within that ecosystem. So I can't just put out an ad and say, hey, join the YGG community. People will be like, yeah, what's the YGG community, right? Like they have to experience the game, whether they're playing Axie, they're playing League of Kingdoms, they're playing Digidaigaku or whatever. And then you can say, hey, join this community and it will really enhance your experience playing this game. So that is kind of a two-step process that I don't think anyone has really figured out how to properly scale in growth terms yet. That's right. That's right. And that's that's a funnel that has to be kind of smoothed out and, and flattened in the process. Yeah, it is tough. It seems like the space, the Web3 gaming space, is all starting to coalesce around this idea of Web3 ready, Web3 ready users being the next kind of growth source, right? Um, and and those are the users that you, there's still a lot of liquidity for. You can reach them on these traditional Web2 ad networks. If you're able to target them, which everyone's working on, then you can bring these Web3 ready users to your door, to your Web3 gaming door, and then you have a product that's optimized for 
actually getting them through those bumpy parts of the funnel. Uh, One thing I'd like to add is that what's really interesting is that the nature of marketing between Web 2 to Web 3 is very different. If you look at most Web 2, especially in games, if you look at the marketing department, it was mostly performance marketing. And what's led the way in initial Web 3 is community-based marketing. So now you've got a lot of the early success stories in Web3, really good at community marketing, but actually have zero idea how to do performance marketing. And now that things are getting sophisticated, people realize that you do need community marketing and you need performance marketing. Um, and yeah, those are two different tracks that are actually very hard to both be good at at the same time. That resonates a lot with me. And I know I just grilled you on the theory and design of quests. But before we close, I'd love for you to tell us a little bit more about SuperQuests and how you plan to help games across the ecosystem scale their engagement. Yeah, so when we looked at most of the quest systems out there, they were trying to be top of funnel quest systems. For example, join the Discord, follow the Twitter, get a reward. And coming from the game industry, I didn't think that offered enough value to the game partners that we were working with. So we wanted to do a quest system that actually brought people into the game that taught people uh, to play the game and then gave them a reason to stay right beyond just uh, kind of playing the game mechanic itself and the model that we came up with was actually masterclass mixed with duolingo i really love masterclass because like their form of user acquisition are their uh, celebrities their creators right it's like Gary Kasparov teaches you how to play chess. Guess what? Gary Kasparov didn't actually design that program, but in terms of UA, it's really great for people to come in and sign up for a course saying, wow, yeah, like Gary Kasparov is actually teaching me. So the first part of SuperQuest is that we have creators that are native to these games that are teaching people how to play a game. For first SuperQuest with Axie, we have two creators, Cuckoo, who's one of the beloved like community onboarding leads, uh, that's been around for a long time. And then our second quest is with Spam and Rise, who's an esports champion. He can teach you how to play better in the game. And we have different quests that you can do that you have to do in the game based on the course that they've taught. So I think this is the kind of future of questing programs where you, you go kind of mid to bottom funnel and you can deliver the players to where the games want you to be, whether it's going to uh, a certain point on the product funnel or delivering them to the community funnel. It kind of depends on what the game's goals are, but it's not enough to just deliver people to an install and letting the game do the work. I think that at some point you need to have content creators, you need to have community, you need to have quests kind of help you bring those players to where you want them to be. Yeah, I think that there's something very beautiful about that. And thanks again for, for joining us. And to all our listeners, we really hope that you enjoyed this episode of the Web3 Growth Podcast by Safari. Uh, Gabby, big thank you from me as well. And, and to all of our listeners, if, if you guys are a fan, you know, please, please be sure to show us your support. Subscribe, like, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, FM Radio, wherever you're tuning in from. And Gabby, before we, we close out here, tell our listeners where they can find you or what they should be on the lookout for from YGG Next besides SuperQuests. Yeah, sure. Uh, go on yieldguild.io to see what our different uh, quest programs are like. Uh, check out uh, our Twitter at yieldguild or discord.gg slash ygg to interact with our community. Thanks so much, everyone, uh, and we'll see you next time.